Welcome back to part two of my chat with the wonderful Susan Kane. Now we've split this podcast into two. For those of you who prefer shorter conversations, you can listen to it on separate days. But we're going to drop both episodes on the same day. So those who are like me, who can't wait for anything, can listen to them in one sitting. But I do encourage you to listen to them in order and start with the first part so it all makes sense. Now, I love reading books and chatting with anyone who makes me think. And that is why I was so excited to sit down with Susan and explore the topic of bittersweet moments. Now, anyone who knows me very well will know that I hate it if people try to make loss pretty, i.e. try to make it neat and put a bow on top. And those that imply there's a silver lining in every cloud as loss just isn't neat. It's messy, it's painful, and it's heartbreaking. Plus, good things don't have to be birthed from dark places. Things can just be agony, heart shattering, and remain as just that. But at times, beautiful gifts can be brought to us by those who have run on ahead. And these are often found in hidden rooms, rooms we may have never entered if we hadn't been lost in the first place. And I really feel my babies brought me such treasure, so many gifts. They brought me the gifts of teaching me how to embrace life and I feel I'm able to experience more joy than I ever could before. And I'm so grateful for that. During this conversation, I really felt heard as Susan and I have such similar philosophies and I hope you feel seen too. So whether your story is messy, neat, straightforward or confusing, whether you've had much needed answers or you're forced to live with not knowing why, I hope this chat makes you think and makes you feel less alone on the walk. So let's join part two of our conversation. I know you talk about the shards, the shards of lightness and hope. Can you share a bit about that? Because I think it all really resonate with a lot of bereaved people. Absolutely. So this is an idea that comes from the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism. And... um, And the teaching in the Kabbalah, which you could take literally or you could take it as a metaphor, I think it works equally well either way. Um, The idea is that all of creation was once a divine vessel, an intact, perfect divine vessel. And it shattered then. Um, And the world that we're living in now is the broken world after that shattering. But all around us are those are the shards of that vessel and they're, they're strewn all around us. And um, really what we can do in this life is pick up those shards when we see them. And you're going to see different ones from the ones that I see, you know, what, what I might walk past and just think of as some rocks and mud will to you be gleaming with light and you're going to be the one to pick that one up and brush it off. Um, and I really, I have, drawn so much solace and inspiration from this idea because it's kind of the answer of how to live in a world that that involves 
so much joy and beauty, but then also tragedy and evil. Like, what do you do with that at the end of the day? But, you know, if you think of it as, okay, there are these shards of joy and beauty and, and all I can do is pick them up where I see them. I, I find that to be very transformative. Um, and, you know, we were talking before about there are ways to be involved with beauty that don't involve, you know, like founding a whole organization or something. Um, so my, my father and my brother actually passed away of COVID um, during the last two years. And thank you. Um, and I thought a lot about my father's life in his passing and was thinking about how he used to do all these things like that were purely about beauty for the sake of them. So like he, he fell in love with orchids. He just loved orchids. So he built a, a greenhouse in our basement and filled it with orchids that no one, and no one ever really saw this greenhouse except for him. And, you know, we would go down and visit him while he was tinkering down there. Um, but he just did it for the sheer act. It was like those orchids were a shard for him that he was picking up. Um, and he, he did things like that over and over and over again. Like his whole life was, was suffused with these, you could call them senseless acts of beauty. Um, and it's a really good way to live and also a good way to handle grief. Absolutely. The fact that it can be unique to you and you can, do it just for you. It doesn't have to be witnessed by the world for it to make more of a difference. Right, right. And the amazing thing, you know, with the internet now, you could also just quietly connect with other people who are like really into their orchids or whatever they're doing. Um, and I, I think that also has a way of heightening it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's easy, isn't it, to get sort of entrenched into this belief system that you only make an impact if you do reach the millions. Um, one of our big philosophies as an organization has always been, we'll always be about the one. We'll always be about the one person who's sobbing on the bathroom floor, the one person mm. who's given up on life because they just don't see that there's any possibility of experiencing joy anymore. And our focus will always be on the one. And and, and the press never like that because they, whenever in interviews, they always want, want how many people are you reaching? Yes, how many people yes. attended that event? How many people wrote in after that? event to say that their life was changed. And we're always like, no, that's not what we do. We don't care if every cathedral seat is filled. It's about mm -hmm. the one heart we touch, which really, you know, resonated. Oh my gosh, when, I love that. Yeah. But the press hate that. The press <laughs> yeah, want it yeah. to be all about the masses. And, and they feel that if you're not doing that and not counting the numbers, why not? And um, mm -hmm. we always said, but what if we were the one? What if yes, we would have won? absolutely. Would, yeah. Would our losses have been enough or would we have just been one of those numbers? And we said at the point we ever stop thinking that way is the day we should stop the organization and walk away from it because we've lost the true point of the work we're doing. Oh my gosh. I have goosebumps as you say that. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I think it's absolutely right. Um, and I guess uh, somehow it made me think of this also. There uh, one of the psychologists who I interviewed for Bittersweet, she was talking about how um, for many of her clients, when they're going through griefs or traumas or whatever it is, like the, they, they'll often feel in the aftermath of that, that kind of as you said, like there won't be joy anymore because even if something good happens, this is the way she put it, even if something good happens, it's always served up with a side of sorrow. That's what she said. Um, and, and I get that. 
And I also think that part of the power of this bittersweet tradition, if you start tuning into it, is that this is what life always was in a way. Like it's always been this, this dance between joy and sorrow and light and dark. It has always been this. This is why like the, the epigraph to my book comes from Leonard Cohn, whose music I adore. <laughs> and, um, and I use the quote from his song Anthem, of, there is a crack in everything that's where the light gets in. And so again, you know, if we were all in charge of the world, would we design it this way? I, I don't know if we would, but this is the world we have. And, it, and in this world, the light gets in through the cracks. Yeah, that's so beautiful and so true. And there is this real tension. Once, so I always say that the first time we were told our baby had died on, because we've lost five babies, um, it was like a trap door had opened beneath our feet and and you can never not know that the trap door is there. You kind of naively walk through life not ex- expecting it to be there. But once you find it is there, it can never be removed again. It opens up your eyes to a whole world that you didn't even know existed. And, and that's really hard then to embrace the joy because you're almost constantly on guard for the trap door opening and everything falling apart. And so it's really hard to move through life, experiencing the joy and welcoming the joy and living with that tension. Right. Right. I think all you can do in a way is take it moment by moment and, you know, joy moment, sorrow moment, joy, joy, sorrow, sorrow, like that. Um, Yeah. You were also asking before about tips and one one of the things, one of the fascinating studies that I found from my research um, is the power of expressive writing. And this comes, I'll, I'll tell you what that is. Well, first I'll tell you, and then I'll tell you about the work behind it. It's basically just the sheer act of just writing things down. Um, and again, not writing them in a way that it's a book that someone else is going to read. So it has to be beautifully written sentences. Not at all. More like just scribbling down whatever the heck you're feeling. Just get it down. You might rip it up two minutes later. That's fine. Um, But we know that the act of writing things down, it's not only incredibly cathartic, but it it literally like improves health, improves a sense of well-being. Um, And we know this from the work of James Pennebaker, He's this psychologist at the University of Texas, and he's done all kinds of studies that have proven this again and again. Um, so one of them it wasn't with an ordinary grief, but he, it was a study of um, a group of 50-something-year-old engineers okay. who had loved their careers and had been laid off, and they were doubtful that they'd ever get work again. So they were quite depressed about it. So that was a kind of morning of, of a, a life's work. Um, and he, he divided this group in two and half of them, he had them do this expressive writing that I was just describing every morning, but the other half were just asked to write like what they were wearing that day or what they had for breakfast, you know, meaningless stuff. Um, and he found that the half who were doing the expressive writing were significantly more likely to have found work a few months later. Their blood pressure was down. Their health markers were up. Um, they had a greater sense of well-being and calm. I mean, it, and this was the only intervention, the sheer act of writing things down. That's so, so incredible. Yeah, yeah. So incredible. What are the things did you find in your research for this book that really surprised you? 
about bittersweetness? Was there anything else that made you go, I would have never predicted that, but that research shows it to be true? Mm. Well, I mean, yes. The work of Laura Karstensen, who is a psychologist at Stanford, and she's done this, it's like really interesting. She's done all these studies showing that older people who are approaching death are actually happier. Um, like we tend to think that when people are approaching death, it would be just the opposite. But she's found they have a greater sense of meaning, um, greater gratitude, less likely to feel angry, greater sense of meaning. And um, and at first, she assumed that the reason for this was that... Um, you know, there's a kind of folk wisdom that age somehow magically confers wisdom. But she found that's not really what it is. And actually what it is, it's just a sense of fragility that confers this wisdom and this meaning. Um, and old people, just by virtue of the fact that they know they don't have many days left, they're acutely aware of life's fragility. But she found the same thing among younger people who, because of their life circumstances, whether grief or political upheaval, or um, she looked at people who are living in the SARS pandemic in Hong Kong yeah. at the turn of the century, those people also had a heightened sense of fragility and had these same markers of, quote, wisdom um, that, that the older people did. So it's the awareness of fragility itself that is the kind of hidden superpower. Wow. That's amazing. That's so amazing. Have you found anything with the research with the music? Does music in any way help people who are feeling really sad or feeling melancholy to actually feel joy when the world would tell you that maybe you're wallowing in self-pity or sadness? Is there any research that shows that actually it does the opposite? Yeah, because that kind of music, you know, minor key, bittersweet, melancholic music, yeah. um, what researchers have found is that when people listen to that music, they they report again and again that they are connected to the so-called sublime emotions, like the emotions of awe, wonder, transcendence, um, transcendence of the self, you know, communion with the all. Um, what that music is really doing underneath it all, it's, 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 sending us the message, you are not alone. You are not alone in this. You are connected to all of humanity because there is not one human who will ever walk the earth who does not experience that which this music is trying to express. Um, and the fact of us all being in this together is somehow, um, there's some, there's somehow something incredibly uplifting um, in a way that helps us transcend our own selves. And, and, and you, I would say music is the most direct expression of this and, and researchers have looked at it, but you see it in other art forms too. Like um, there's an amazing haiku that I talk about in the book. It comes from um, a Japanese Buddhist poet named Issa who lived 200 years ago. Um, and he also kept losing babies. And then he and his wife finally had a baby who survived, but she then died, I think, of smallpox at around the age of two. So he's shattered by grief. He's also trained as a Buddhist and therefore trained to be aware of life's impermanence and to accept it. But he writes this poem where he says, he's basically saying, I know that this world of dew is just a world of dew. You know, meaning I get it that everything's impermanent and the dew is going to evaporate. I get it. 
And then he ends the poem and he says, but even so. And there's something about, but even so. Like, it's like he's telling us, no matter what, it is going to hurt. Um, and the fact that he's bothering to write this poem down to somebody else who's going to read it because he knows that everybody else is going to experience, but even so. Um, and the fact that we're reading it 200 years later, and therefore we're participating in this great communion of humans who have tried to understand what impermanence is um, and felt in the face of all that understanding, but even so, there's something so intensely um, uplifting about that. Oh my goodness, so much so. I think, you know, for me, I just want to then scream, yeah, even so, even even though I'm happy for what I've got, I can still grieve for what I've lost, yes. even though this, I can still this. And, and I think because as a society, we're so scared of pain and suffering, we often force people to just look at the joy and say, well, aren't you grateful for what you've got? Because I think the world often does say that to us, the fact that if we in any way express pain or grief, the fact that we're not grateful for what we've got in life or... Yeah. And, um, and I think that's why your work so resonates with me and with millions of other people is because you give people permission to say, we can feel it all. Yeah. And yeah. by experiencing one, it doesn't negate the power of the other. Right. Where society often tells us it does. Yes, that's it. Yeah, that that seems like a very deep either or thinking what you were just describing, like that you couldn't simultaneously be mourning your losses and loving the children you have. Um, but I, that that to me is really the great teaching of the bittersweet tradition that they exist together. These things exist together. They always have and they always will. Um, and we can fight against that or we can recognize it. Yeah. And we can use it to help us feel deeply, more deeply all round, which is what I always say about the valleys that were born within us because of the pain we went through, that it was because we were open to that, that they now can be filled with so much more joy. I am a way happier person um, this side of loss than I was before. And that's purely because I've not been afraid of the pain that we went through. And I don't take things for granted anymore because I embrace it all and I don't run from the pain but that's purely because I decided to show up for the grief. How long did it take you to get there? I'd say a good few years after the loss before I was even willing to see the beauty in the pain. Um, I didn't want to kind of look at the the suffering but I then went on to experience more loss. So it took me a good few years, but then I had to navigate that path of still seeing that there was beauty in the pain, but yet here I was again going through it yet again. And right, how can right. the same horror happen over and over again? Once you've been told by a sonographer and a doctor the fact that I'm really sorry your baby's died, you kind of think that you just won't hear it again. And so mm -hmm. when you do hear it again, it's such a shock. And some may think that you'd be somewhat prepared for it, but actually the opposite's true. You're, you feel like you've 
taken the short straw once and you're not going to take it again. And, um, yeah. and, and that was amplified after we got to bring our daughter home from the hospital um, because three of our losses were before she was born. So once mm-hmm. we'd got to bring her home, we really didn't think we'd encounter loss again. We thought we had, whatever was wrong had somehow been fixed and mm-hmm. we would always then bring home healthy children from that point on. I certainly was mightily shocked when we went through loss again, another twice. And and I think that's what many bereaved parents find when they go through repeated tragedy, the fact that how can this possibly be happening again? And and, and it's really hard to hold on to the things you have learned and the beauty from the previous lives lost, which you're determined to do because they're your precious children. Right. But at the same time, you're into that valley of pain where you feel like you'll never recover again. Um, yeah, it's really hard and it's uh, a melting pot of joy and beauty and pain and devastation yeah. and having to deal with people who say the right things and people who say the wrong things and trying to think the best of people at the same time as mm-hmm. thinking oh how lucky are you to not know this and um, and it's really hard but there is so much beauty for us that's come out of it and that's not through the work of the organization even it's just through our lives in the fact like I say I always comment that I probably saw life as black and white before and now I feel I see life in multicolor it's like that scene in Wizard of Oz when everything suddenly turns in color because of everything we've been through it's just shown me that and and maybe everyone's story does that maybe every one of us has an epiphany moment where the lights go on and you realize what life is all about I think everybody has the potential to do that and um yeah, it's almost like the flip side of the the idea from the Stoics of memento mori. Um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but the idea is to remember death all the time and and not because you want to be existing in a state of morbidity, but kind of the opposite, that you want to be existing in a state where you're aware of the preciousness of everything and everyone around you. Um, and the more you remember precarity in that way, the more you're able to see that beauty and exist in that state. Yeah, that's exactly it. And says exactly what I feel loss has done for me. So towards the end of my chats, I love to ask a few random questions. So listeners feel they've got to know you a little better. Now, don't worry, they aren't quick fire. You can take your time answering them. I know the sheer notion of quickfire questions can make even the most seasoned podcaster panic. Um, But my first question is this. How would you like to be remembered? I guess I'll just tell you the answer that came to me instantly was just the, um, I, I guess I just thought of the love of my family and I, I want them to, you know, I guess I just want my family to remember how much love we have always had. Um, and well, how do, how do I say this from a career point of view? I remember having a feeling after I wrote quiet of like, well, I still, I mean, I still really want to live and I want to be, um, raising my kids and all of this, but from a purely from a career point of view, like that would be enough. Like it's been, 
it's been so amazing to connect with so many people and feel like the work you put into the world is that helpful that, um, you know, like you could die happy after that. Um, but the truth is I love my work and the ongoing connections with readers so much. And I love my family so much. So I guess I just want to keep soaking all that up and be remembered for that. That's amazing. What would you say your biggest mistake has been? I don't know, but I'll tell you about there's a period in my life that I ask myself all the time whether or not it was a mistake. Okay. And that's the thing that we were talking about at the very beginning of my choice to go to law school and be a lawyer for all those years. Mm -hmm. Because um, if you look at that from one point of view, that was a huge mistake. You know, it was spending a decade of, you know, my most energetic and, um, and alive years, um, in the wrong direction career-wise. But on the other hand, I do feel like those years gave me access to a whole way, a whole way of thinking and being and like all these people who I got to know who I never would have known or understood if I hadn't lived in that world of like high finance for all those years. Um, And I don't, know that I would be the same writer that I am now if I hadn't had that experience. So that, so I end up concluding that I actually don't regret it and I'm glad for all of it. I also sort of enjoyed it while it was happening, um, most of it. So yeah, so I guess I share that answer to say it, it, it's interesting. I, I ask myself that question all the time. Um, but in the end, I end up feeling like it was, was not a mistake. Yeah, I think many of us would say that if you really look at some of the biggest mistakes or the the choices that you wouldn't make now with hindsight, which none of us have the mm-hmm. beauty of at the time, mm-hmm. I think we would say, actually, those things have played a pivotal part on our journey now. And so to eradicate yes. them actually would eradicate a big path that we've walked down. Exactly. Yeah. I don't even know if I would have ended up writing quiet if I hadn't had all those years because you know, I started thinking of the ideas for quiet when I was sitting at the corporate law firm and noticing that like we had a language for talking about gender, for example, and the way that that shaped the different ways that people would interact and negotiate and, and, you know, show up at meetings and things, but there was no way for talking. We had no language for speaking of underlying temperament. Yeah. So I don't know if I hadn't had those years of observing this, would I even have written that book? Probably not. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just so glad you went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) When do you feel the most joy? Um, Gosh, I I guess what comes instantly is uh, music. It's so intense what I feel with music. Um, I don't mean like every single time that I I put music on, but, but pretty reliably. And especially if I'm listening to like the right songs at the right time of day, like late at night. Um, yeah, it's a kind of reliable, earth-transcending joy. Is there a song you go back to every time? Well, I go back to Leonard Cohen a lot. Okay. He's like very reliable for me. Um, but I have I have a lot of music that I love. And I actually just started a bittersweet playlist um, that I've put up on Spotify and Apple Music so people can find it. Um, and I'm going to keep on adding to it. I love that. I love that. Who is someone from the past you'd love to chat with and why? Joseph Campbell. Okay. uh, The mythologist. um, I've never heard of him. 
Oh gosh, you would love him. You should be reading his books for sure. Um, he, he did a famous one called the power of myth, um, hero with a thousand faces. He basically like he spent his whole life studying the different mythologies and religions of the world and extracted from them, you know, the, the wisdom that's common to all of them basically. And so you just get so many insights from reading him. Um, and I often think to myself, I, I don't know how long ago he passed away, maybe 10 or 20 years, but I often think, oh, what would he say about what's going on, you know, right now? What would, what do you say, what would he say about this or that? Um, but I will say, you know, the amazing thing about um, the fact that people are now recorded is that you can listen to them from when they were alive and it feels like they still are. It's it's a really great gift. Yeah. It's so odd, isn't it? The fact that just because of the nature of social media now that all these people are at your fingertips and you don't know whether they're here now. Do you know one of the most Googled things about Zoe Clark Coates is, is Zoe Clark Coates dead? And oh my God. I was just like, are you serious? yeah, why are people looking that up on Google? And um, what's my age? Am I married? And am I dead? And um, And that's like the top, thing that searched on me and people have said to me it's because you're a quote writer that a lot of people who have written quotes aren't no longer here the quotes that we always share around are from people who aren't in existence anymore gosh that's crazy I also wonder if it's something about like the reason we're so afraid to talk about grief is because we must feel underneath that it brings us that much closer to death itself. And yeah. that's why that, because you talk about grief, they're associating you with that. Yeah, maybe. They're assuming you must not. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I know. I definitely need to do some Insta stories telling people to stop searching it <laughs> <laughs> because I'm definitely here. If they just need to look a little bit further and not hit Google. Um, next question is what book have you read that's changed your life the most? Oh gosh, I'm terrible at these questions. You can see me like looking around my office now, <laughs> looking for the answer. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it'll come to me. I don't have a good answer. Isn't it funny when you put on the spot? You see so many people, if I ask them that question, they'd say your book. And so it's really interesting <laughs> to hear what other people's books are that are the core cornerstones for their life in the fact of the book that they'd always go back to or the book they'd take on a desert island because they know they could reread it a thousand times and they'd see something different in it every single time. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's so much that I love. I don't know. I, I'm going to say a book. I, I don't know if I don't know if I'd say this is the book for the desert island exactly, but one book that has really, like I think about it all the time, is Flow by the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Okay. Um, and he's basically talking about how we have this capacity to get in this state of flow where you're like, you're surfing the narrow channel between boredom and anxiety. So you're like, you're challenged, you're engaged, but to a perfect degree, you know, it's yes. not boring, it's not stressful, it's just like you're in it. And that that was actually very mind-shifting because I realized how much I love that state of flow and I've like organized my life. So I'm in that state as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the most transformative state, you know, where you achieve the most, create the most, yeah. you're the happiest. 
Um, not in the ah sense of happy, but like yes. in the deeply present sense. Yeah. And knowing that you've just achieved something. Yeah. So I really recommend that book. Yeah. Great. Everybody should go and get that. Um, if you could relive one moment of your life again, which moment would that be? I don't know exactly, but I'll tell you what just flashed to mind, which was uh, um, being actually in labor for my first son. And uh, and I had a very long labor for that one. So I had a lot of, a lot of time kind of before mm-hmm. he was coming um, where I wasn't in any particular discomfort. So my husband and I were like dancing around in the, um, in the delivery room. And that's what just came to my mind. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> what piece of advice would you give to yourself as a child? Okay. Again, I, it's funny. I have these feel, this feeling when you're asking me these questions of like, oh, I have to give the exact right answers. And I don't, <laughs> and no I don't think I have the right answers. All I really have is like my first association. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first association with that is my husband keeps telling me now, it's really lovely. Um, he keeps telling me, tell your 12 year old self that you were going to become a writer. Like tell your 12 year old self that your, uh, you know, your next book just got published. Um, and, and I really love that because, you know, I did feel from such an early age that writing was the destiny that I longed for, but I had no expectation it was really going to come true. Yeah. It's a kind of pinch me moment, isn't it? Do you allow yourself to really feel it in the moment? I know I am taken to task often by people where they say you don't sit in that moment long enough before you're rushing for the next moment. Um, So as soon as I stop writing one book, I'm kind of moving on to the next. So then if it um, reaches a lot of people, it kind of goes over my head because I'm like, oh, my mind's now in the next book. And people say, no, you need to experience that moment and live that moment. Are you good at that? Um, I'm, I'm like you, I would say, I mean, I definitely, I, I, I have those moments again and again, whenever I get letters from readers and I still get them from quiet, which came out a while ago. And now I'm starting to get them from bittersweet. And, um, every time I get these letters that are like, oh my God, you know, you, you said what I've always been feeling that to me is the best thing in the world. So, so I do have those moments again and again, Yeah, but other than those moments where I'm kind of shaken into it by, by readers reaching out. Um, I'm exactly like you. And I don't think it's an altogether bad thing. I mean, I'm sure I should like relax and exult more. Um, but I also just love the whole creative process. So like a lot of people have said to me, Oh, it must be a bittersweet feeling in and of itself to have finished this book. And now it's out in the world. Um, and you know, it's no longer like yours in that same way. And I don't feel that at all because I mean, right now I'm really busy talking about it, but Mm -hmm. also I have a thousand other things that I want to be working on too. So it's all just part of the process to me. So I don't think that's bad exactly. Yeah. I, I guess it's nice to to rest at the way stations a little bit longer. How but I like but I like the road. Yeah, yeah, totally get it. How long ago was bittersweet the book birthed within you to know that that was something you were going to write on that that would be one of your next books 
It was a while ago. I don't know the exact, exact date, but I want to say like 2014 or something like that. So, you know, quite a while ago. And are you already birthing the next idea? Is there always a whole load of ideas in the basket or just a couple? There's always a whole load of them. Whenever they come into my head, I write them down because I know that I might forget otherwise. Um, but then usually just without doing too much work about it, I I kind of know what I want to actually pursue. So I have two things, right? Like, right now, I'm, uh, I already have my idea for my next book, mm-hmm. though I haven't started working on it. Um, and I'm also um, starting to put together a podcast. So those are my next big projects. That's so exciting. And it's just so nice to always have those creative routes to know where you're heading, isn't it? I think if you're really are strategic and visionary, it kind of is what burns you and fuels you along that journey. As you say, the nature of creativity is, you know, embracing it and walking with it and being guided by it. Sometimes it's not even within your control. Absolutely. And I really do want to say to anybody who's listening who feels that kind of creative longing, I promise you, like I I um, loved doing this stuff and just like sitting and writing long before I ever expected to actually publish anything. And what I actually said to myself, you know, during those first years after leaving the law and when I was writing those memoirs and plays and things, um, I said to myself that the goal was that I had to publish something by the time I was 75 and if I met that goal, then it was good. Um, so I did not have like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, this is only worth doing if this thing turns into a bestseller. Mm-hmm. It was quite the opposite. Yeah. And and then that's so the same as me as well. I mean, I wrote my book knowing the fact that people wanted it, but without even the publisher ready to publish it. And um, mm. just, you know, I wanted our story to be on paper, even if it was just yeah. for our children to read after we're gone and for them to have that information. And it didn't matter to me if it was published or not. And I think when you're writing from that place of true creativity and longing just to put those words on the paper it it definitely transports easier and it becomes less hard to to find the words because you're just doing it for you yes um the final question is what do you believe is the secret to happiness and a fulfilled life it's got to be a life of meaning and a life of expression of of whatever you really see and believe like that there, there has to be a way of expressing that. Um, yeah, I, I would say I'm kind of a meaning junkie. <laughs> like I kind of, <laughs> that's what really matters to me at the end of the day. But you know what I'm thinking? Like just the way I said that with creativity, for me, it's the road rather than the way station. Mm-hmm. I think the same is true with meaning. Like I don't really expect to ever find the ultimate, like to know the answer of the ultimate meaning of life. But there's something about thinking about it and, you know, interacting with anyone who's ever written about it over the last 2000 years, like reading their words. There's something about the search, the the relentless search for it that I find to be so incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I, I can't really imagine living any other way. No, and not and not asking those questions or being eager to listen to those um the people who were sharing their truth. Yeah. And I, I mean, this was from a very early age. Like I, 
I remember being four years old and, and it dawning for the first time, like, why, why are we alive? Like, what is this all about? And I just don't think I've stopped asking that question for a day, a day ever since. Wow. So these big questions definitely started in you from such a young age, which shows yeah. it's part of your yeah. DNA. I do think so. I do think so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I know it's going to have helped so many people. And I just encourage everyone to go out and get your book, get previous books if you haven't read them before, um, because I think they will help you connect to your soul and just realize that you're not alone. The fact that we're all on this walk together and um, there's a power in knowing that, the fact that you can just reach out and take a hand and not feel so isolated in your struggles. Um, so thank you for sharing. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so, so much for having me, Zoe. And I love the work that you do in the world. And it was so lovely to be able to just sit down with you and really talk. So thank you. Thank you.